regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Ambato Rizzoli, the co-founder of V7, a platform for deep learning teams to manage training data workflows and create image recognition AI. V7 is used by AI-first companies and enterprise, including Honeywell, Merck, General Electric, and MIT. Alberto founded his first startup at the age of 19 and made the Maker Faire's 20 under 20 list. In 2015, he began working on AI with Simon Edwardson while studying under Ray Kurzweil leading to the creation of the first engine capable of running large deep neural networks on smartphone CPUs. Uh, this project later became AI Poly, a startup that helped the blind identify over 3 billion objects to date using their phones. Uh, Abato's work on AI granted him an award and personal audience by the Italian president Sergio Mattarella, as well as Italy's Premier Gentile for Science and Innovation. V7's underlying technologies also won the CES Best of Innovation in 2017 and 2018. So Ambato, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here and thanks for having me. Fabulous. By way of introduction, I believe that you were born in Italy and later you did your bachelor degree in management science at the Cass Business School in London. So can you share with the audience briefly about your upbringing alongside your college experience? Yeah, so I grew up in Rome, Italy, and Italy isn't a place where information technology or technology in general is seen in very high regard, unfortunately, but we do produce a lot of really great talent in data science and especially machine learning. Some of the best academics are coming from where I'm from. And my upbringing was nothing too particularly special other than maybe I have a degree in business management, which makes me an imposter in this community. It's not something I would recommend to to anybody, my school is actually getting renamed from Cass Business School to Bayes Business School, which I much more prefer as a name given given Bayes' uh, relationship with machine learning. And uh, so I'm pretty happy about that. Other than that, my passion as a kid has always been in, in tech, like most people in our field, usually starts with video games, uh, wanting to create your own video games, and then being fascinated by the automata inside them and wishing they were a little bit smarter, especially strategy games that have these very macro roles like civilization or or other RTSs that have uh, macroscopic goals where the AI doesn't really think that way. And you always start thinking, hey, how do I get something that can think many, many turns ahead? In some way, this, this all makes us more fascinated towards what deep learning can do. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing that, that context and how do you being interested in games and, and leading to your later work in AI. While doing a little bit of homework on your background, I found out that during college, you also participated in developing a 3D printing products for EdTech, 
And because of that achievement, you were featured in the 20 under 20 list by Microsphere. So what were some of the key learnings that you absorbed from that first entrepreneurial stint at the age of 19? Yeah, I think it, it's always been something I've wanted to do. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. They all ran their own businesses and they were all in more traditional stuff. So my grandfather was in paper publishing. Actually, my great-grandfather was in paper publishing. My grandfather was in paper publishing and he then moved on to cinema. My father was in cinema and TV. So they kind of moved forward in the, the world of media, which is not something that really always fascinated me personally. But I've always wanted to you know, put my own stamp on something and drive my own path forward. And I've been lucky enough to have a co-founder that thinks the same way and has similar ambitions to myself. But before I met Simon, I tried a whole bunch of things. And uh, yeah, during uni, one of my my kind of first endeavors uh, entrepreneurially was to work in a, a two-person at the time, myself and another person, 3D printing startup. And we were really trying to figure things out. 3D printing was really hot at the time, it was still the, the early 2010s, and uh, it had a lot of promise. And maybe the one learning that I got from there is to tackle a market that will enthusiastically buy your product right away if you want to do your first startup. And the second one is to work with bits, not atoms. Things that are physical take a whole lot of time to be built and they're not very agile as software is. I was curious, I suppose you cultivate a pretty strong work ethic just kind of doing this experiment by starting, right? Uh, was there anything particular you know, kind of struck you that you kind of sustain? Yeah, it has its pros and its cons. And I think the pros outweigh the cons. In a way, every year as a startup founder, no matter how good or not your startup is, is a year where you learn three times as much as learning as working at a company, especially when you're young and you're not given big responsibilities. If you have to build everything yourself, if you have to sink or swim, you will learn things that you would otherwise not because uh, they have to be outside of your comfort zone. You have to go and fix something. You have to go and learn how to fix something if it breaks, because everything depends on it. And these are things that you can happily do in your 20s and make mistakes and live off of very cheap budgets. Mm. On the other side, working in an enterprise, especially a really good one, can give you a lot of learning on how things are done at scale. And sometimes I find myself today hiring people that know a lot more than me about how something should be done in a larger company, which is great. But at the same time, I wish I had a bit of that exposure. I think the best of both worlds is to kind of always have this, this learning attitude and, and talking to a lot of people that work at other companies that may be doing something you're interested in better than you. I would not have given up kind of, a, I would not have changed the way I, I grew up trying to start my own thing. I was also fortunate because I could do that economically. I lived on very little money, but at the same time, I had the means of doing so. I had my university paid for by scholarship, and I didn't really say I had a, a tough growing up. I was quite privileged. So if you're able to take on these adventures and do them, then by all means do so and, and always do it seriously. Always do it to, to win in the end. Yeah, I think those are excellent opinion inside. You know, and I really like how do you emphasize on that learning attitude and, and can do that with the 20s, right? When there's not a lot of, you know, responsibility yet. And that's the best time to, to get explore and, and, and work as fast as possible and setting up foundation for your latest life. After finishing undergrad in 2015, you uh, joined this graduate study program by the Singularity University at uh, NASA Ames Research Park under a Google Funded Scholarship. To give the, the listeners some context, based on my finding, Singularity University is a global learning and innovation community 
using exponential technologies to tackle the world's biggest challenges and build a better future for all. So how was your overall experience during that pivotal year? Uh, 2015 was a great year. SU, Singularity University, was this uh, project founded by Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil with the attempt of making a kind of a new type of university. And I think that the 2012 to 2015 years might have been the best time for doing something like that because all the technologies that today everyone knows about and talks about there were, were just emerging. We had the CRISPR discovery in 2014. We had self-driving cars emerging at the time. We had deep learning. We had the very first AlexNet paper emerge in 2013. And so everything was happening at the same time. People were talking about 3D printing and self-driving cars and neural networks and entrepreneurs claiming that they could discover any, any disease you might have with a drop of blood from your fingertip. Everything was happening that time. And there was this incredible hope for this new decade of technology. And it was an incredible experience, I have to say. And maybe the three months that I remember most fondly in my youth because the program itself basically put you in a pretty isolated NASA base with another 70 or so really, really ambitious people. And great stuff happens from there. You develop friendships that last for your whole life, even though it's a relatively short time frame. When you're stuck in a foxhole with people, you really bond. And uh, then secondarily, it was maybe one of the best times to look at technology and imagine its future because a lot of things were emerging. And then some of these turn out to be false promises and some of them turn out to be extraordinary ones like uh, neural networks are continuing to revolutionize the software industry. And I think we're only at the beginning of seeing what changes it will, it will have. All in all, I hope that there will be more programs like SU Emerge. I think it's going to start a new way of, of creating communities, especially as, as young people are increasingly, they will have to forge their own path and think about a world that is increasingly uncertain with change happening every decade in ways that previously happened every five decades. It's, it's great to have that experience of bundling together into one place and discussing where the, these future technologies would go. To give you some context, you, you would get guest lectures from all over Silicon Valley people that have started the Google self-driving car project or that have pioneered neural nets. And they would come visit and you would have the chance to debate the, the future of that piece of technology with them. And uh, that's pretty invaluable, especially for the confidence that it gives you at actually meeting face-to-face the people that have started your field and understanding that they're just like you, just a little bit older and maybe a bit more experienced, but you can still sit at the same table if you have the the ambitious, the curiosity, and obviously the politeness to do so. Yeah, well, that's definitely an, an amazing experience, just, just from your answer. I'm just curious, is the rest of that cohort that you were a part of, what kind of demographic is that? Are they the same age as you? Or are they slightly younger? And where are they from? Like Besides AI, what kind of other um, emerging tech trends that were popping up during those times? Yeah. I was the second youngest in the program. I think 21 is the minimum age because of U.S. drinking laws. And obviously, there's a lot of drinking if you want ideas to flow and people to bond. And the rest of the group tended to be in their 20s with some people being in their 30s. But I think that tendentially people are more prone to to living these experiences when they're younger. 
because they can just chuck it and, and leave for three months and go go somewhere with very uncertain outcomes. And then they were specifically selected to be very diverse demographically from the countries that they come from. So there's a representation of at least, you know, that there's generally one person from a country it can't be every country because it's 70 of us. But uh, and then there's a few that have maybe two or three people, for example, the United States being such a huge territory had a few more participants or delegates, if you will, uh, which created a, a really good dynamic, a really interesting one from the problems perspective, because you get an idea of what the problems of humanity are from a perspective that is not Silicon Valley centric since Silicon Valley has much less problems than, than other parts of the world. And that's an excellent one. I love that you brought up the point about like the diversity and solving global problems, which sometimes kind of lacking from people who from the Bay Area. But specifically, as a result of your experience with the Singularity University Global Solution Program, you and you know some other people developed this product called the uh, AI Poly, which was developed in order to aid the blind and visually impaired, allowing them to scan a room or a series of objects with their phone and then listen to what objects that the camera could spot. So my question is twofold. First of all, what inspired you to work on building an AI system for the Bly? And then second of all, can you just kind of briefly explain the core technologies that power the product? Yeah, I think it started. One of the catalysts was a conversation with Peter Norvig from Google, who was discussing their ambitions to train deep learning models on YouTube and figure out what they would find. And this was back in the time in which we thought that just chucking unsupervised data into a model would lead to, to any result we wished for. And we were thinking what AI will do when video training and especially more, more real-time tweaking of its weights becomes a possibility. And we were truly excited by the possibility of this in, in accessibility technology because you create this companion that understands the world around you. And the people that need a companion the most are the ones that already do do have one today and make compromises for because they get in the form of a dog. An eye-seeing dog is someone that looks for you and guides you around. And it's a very expensive companion, not to mention they don't have the same lifespan as a human being. So you have to have multiple ones of them and they are invaluable for a person with visual impairment. But we thought we could make a technological version of it that can talk to you using classifiers at the time. It was the only thing you could really run in real time. And the inspiration actually came from a childhood friend of my parents who lost his eyesight in a hunting accident. Quite a brutal way to do so, but it does happen. And when you're permanently blind, you are much more of a, you find things a lot more challenging than just being partially sighted or visually impaired, which is the majority of people. And that is the most extreme case where you have zero vision left. And you rely on people to tell you about things around you. There's not just an element of navigation where a dog will lead you to where you have to go, but there's an element of narration as well, of understanding what's going on around you, that poetry of, you know, the color of the sunset, especially if you remember such a thing as the sunset sight, it adds more zest to your life. And we thought, hey, let's, uh, let's try to do this with AI and train a classifier on so many objects that it can literally be a descriptor of your life. And uh, that's what led to iPoly. Can you tell a bit about sort of the AI technologies that power AI poly architecture and things like that? At the time, there were neither many architectures nor many data sets to use. And 
we managed to find a bunch of data sets that we licensed at the time that were coming from smartphone imagery that really hit the spot on uh, what we were looking after. So we were very lucky in that regard. And to this day, we still keep a secret as to kind of what data sets PowerIPoly's uh, classifiers. But the biggest advantage is that they had to be these single label classifiers. At the time, you know, VQA was really the cool stuff in helping the visually impaired because you can have them ask questions, but it was just impractical to do so. But the really cool thing about iPoly and the real novelty is that it was running in real time on a smartphone CPU. Mm. Uh, and there was only one example of that previous existing, which was WordLens acquired by Google, which then became Google Translate. Mm. And they were running these tiny classifiers to classify characters, whilst we were running a, a 256 by 256 classifier on basically the, the input stream of the camera and then classifying 5,000, started with 1,000 objects, then 5,000 objects inspired by some of the architectures used at ImageNet. We kept updating the architecture until we, we started squeezing the models, get them really tiny, getting them to not heat up your phone massively when you were using them. And so that led to a lot of also R&D and also research that we were able to, to share with the world on, on how actually to effectively run these things efficiently in real time. Today, there's so much more that can be done on mobile that you know makes our work back then pale in comparison. But it is the case with all deep learning research. You, know, you look five years back and it looks like a caveman technology almost. Yeah, for sure. And VQA is, is visual question answering, right? Yes. Sorry, I, I'll. Uh, yeah, no worries. I, I'll be sure. I'll be more that. descriptive of those. It's a model that can um, tackle the task of looking at and answering a question just just by looking at images. Maybe this is a good time to just get some job perspective on neural network inference on edge devices. What are some of the work that you most excited about? Maybe in the upcoming years or so, related to you know performing cutting edge AI technologies on mobile and hardware devices things like that. What are you uh, paying attention to? I really hope that we do federated learning better or that we have at least a common framework for doing so, because to one degree, especially V7 relies very heavily on the cloud because really good models are made to run on the cloud. Running things on edge gives you a lot of compromises, but it gives you a massive advantage, which is privacy. And it's something that everyone in V7 really cares about. Just as people, we understand especially computer vision of all the disciplines is the creepiest when it comes to infringing people's idea of safety. And we really don't want that to be a, something that changes the way people see our field. So edge inference, if you're able to send weights back to the mothership in a way that is private will be fantastic. Having the weights go back, I think is incredibly important for any AI company that's trying to have some competitive advantage especially when bias is going to become more of an issue or negative bias of not being able to sample data from populations of users or populations of subjects that you aren't really able to collect for your training set. And so, yeah, this kind of privacy-preserving federated learning is something I'm really excited about. There isn't enough being done, and for good reasons. We're still early in the journey but it'll open up a lot more possibilities. And I really see the companies that will be preserving privacy in deep learning development in the future are the ones that I think people are going to trust and, and learn to love. And it creates also a really good internal culture for caring about that stuff. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that, that opinion. Yeah, it definitely seems like privacy and governance and, and this kind of topic are uh... Uh, become more and more pressing. And it seems from a research point of view, that's still very much stuck on, on, on research lab and haven't been commercialized yet. So certainly 
super excited to see that being put into production in the upcoming years or so. Another question about uh, AI Poly. So I got a chance to watch two of your really you know, fantastic talks in 2016 at TEDx Geneva and TEDx Melbourne about AI Poly, which like, talk about all the problems setting and, and how you know, the solution being provided. AI Poly also were multiple awards, you know, such as Tech 23, SEO Global Grand Challenge, and Antio Smart 100. Kind of reflecting on all of these achievements, what are some of the key factors that you think are fundamentals to the warm public reception of AI Poly? It was definitely a very loved company and a very loved mission. And it's mainly because it helped one of the most vulnerable populations out there. And I think that this is the dichotomy of entrepreneurship that the world doesn't openly discuss, that sometimes the companies that are most loved are also the ones that are being the least successful. As iPoly was really publicly well-received and it won, it was an award magnet. Everywhere we participated, we would tell our stories and we would show the reaction and the testimonials from users and it just warms people's hearts. But sometimes the best stories also don't have that strong of a market behind them. And so you, you're seeing a lot of people out there that are doing really great for the world. I have friends that work in helping people who uh, have no home or that have certain disabilities that make it impossible for them to join the workforce. And similarly, these people are awarded and they're really loved by the public when the story gets told. But the challenge on the other side is that there is less of a support network in what's effectively capitalism in helping these really loved companies grow. And I wish that was something we could see. Uh, you know, the, the awards are cool and they're great for getting this, sell, this validation that you're doing something great and that people love you. But yeah, I've been struggling, you know, whilst at iPoly and, and just even after that with thinking how can companies that have more of a social mission still find a self-organized way of support like private companies do, which ultimately the, the goal for the people that put money into it is, is to also make money on their side. That's something I, don't, I still don't have an answer for, but it, it keeps me busy every now and then. For sure. That's a, that's a big a structural question. How can we support people actually doing good for the world and have a system to allow them to get profit while you know, helping people? I guess you know that's one of the reasons why you, know, you and, and your co-founder, Simon Equestrian, transitioned into uh, after AI Poly. Your current company, V7 Labs, emerged out of scale in 2019. And the company mission is to accelerate human understanding of the natural world through machine vision by enabling any device to gain a sense of sight. So yeah, can you share a bit about the backstory behind founding the company, as well as the meaning behind the name V7? Yeah, so iPoly's value was in the technology and that ability to run things so quick on the device. And then its love came from its target use case. And its cost came from its training date. That was the part that was hardest to achieve and ultimately that led to the success of both elements, to great models and to great, really engaged customers that thought the, the app was magic, couldn't believe that it was all automated. And V7 is uh, the answer to this. There's not just one company like Apple that needs training data to create magic, but there's hundreds of them. And I think that in 10 years, every software company will need a training data set to achieve its goals and will run a lot more on learned approaches than it does on code. So the purpose of V7 is to make people not worry about training data anymore. If they want 
an AI, a robot, a service to perform a task, to detect something, it should be very easy for them to just add raw examples of it and label them in, in a snap or label them without worrying about the huge costs and time sink that it is turning something into a training data set. So it's a very automation-focused uh, SaaS product, one that is above and beyond the best user experience in the market. And I say it with a bit of bias because I made it, but it's something we've put a lot of love and attention into. And the public reception so far has been staggeringly good. We're in the kind of hyper growth or the very fun phase of a startup in which the customers pull it harder than you can keep up with certain things. We started in 2018. It's been a pretty amazing journey for the main fact that our customers are primarily AI companies and, and data scientists. So they're some of the smartest people that we meet. And it's always really nice when you're talking to your customers and they're really smart and uh, they're also working on, each one of them is working on a new way of solving something with AI. So you get this exposure to the entire world of, of software reimagining itself or finding new ways of applying software to a problem that previously was unsolvable. The meaning of it named after the areas of the visual cortex. So we have six of them in the human brain. V1 handles very simple shapes. It's basically like the first layer of a neural net. There's a really interesting and creepy paper by two Swedish scientists, Hubel and Weasel, that took a cat and then they straddled the cat to a jig and placed an electrode in the cat's visual cortex. And then they realized that if you showed pictures to the cat, and this was basically in the V1 era, you showed pictures to the cat and the cat would not react, or at least the neurons would not fire. But then by mistake, they removed one of the slides in those old timey projectors from the 50s and a horizontal line appeared on the screen. It was basically the light being focused in a horizontal beam and suddenly the neuron fires and you can hear this crackling noise in, in this really grainy video. And obviously they don't show the cat because the, the poor thing was with an electrode in its brain. And uh, you can go find it. I think you might find it on YouTube if you go deep into its dark recesses enough. And that's when we discovered that the visual cortex works in layers. And similarly, we build neural networks with layers and we wanted to create something that was the, the next level of the visual cortex, something that could enable machines to learn as well as humans, maybe even better than humans at some point, and uh, help create this new Cambrian explosion of AI companies that are able to do almost anything using neural nets. Yeah, I look up the paper and maybe put it in the show notes so, so people can have a chance to kind of read it and, and observe what you talk about. Just out of curiosity, like, you know, we talk about visual cortex and it seems like there's a lot of inspiration from neuroscience that your team is used to develop the neural networks. Is that something that you personally interested in, like getting inspiration from neuroscience literature and thinking about the way the R&D work of V7? Yeah. So for one, it's obviously the easiest proxy for a narrative to compare things to the brain because it's our closest example to a system that figures things out on its own. I think it's also fascinating when you work in AI, you start realizing how good of a classifier the human brain is and how much it basically subconsciously learns stuff. And it's able to associate these patterns, smells and noises suddenly trigger memories on its own. And you start making more and more parallels to the world that you actually do on computers. I think it's a great story and one that sometimes is taken a little too far in, compare, in direct comparisons between neuroscience and silicon systems. And I think we're really not even close to the end of it. I think neural networks are a step in the right direction. But if we look at the crazy sci-fi predictions of AGI, 
I think we're very far from nailing the fundamentals of that. I think we're missing a, a couple of key components on it. So it's a comparison that we take inspiration from, but obviously the claim that neural nets and natural neurons are alike is just one of analogy. Yeah, definitely. And then there's just another quick thing that I'm kind of curious about is your co-founder, Simon, also going to come from AIPOLI and you keep continuing working with him at V7 Labs. What about, you know, your co-founder relationship and make it strong? Great question, because I think this is one of the hardest things in uh, entrepreneurship is uh, co-founders are really important because there will come a time in which either you're, you're sick, you're bummed out, you're tired of something, and they provide the they're like a mirror to you sometimes and they provide the help and support that you need in actually going through what's otherwise a pretty hard challenge. But most importantly, they're also complement to your skill set that creates a unit. Eventually the founders are kind of like a, a one person thing, especially in the early days of a startup. And uh, usually both should have the technical skills, but then among those, one has maybe deeper technical skills. The other one is more of a storyteller. And that's the dynamic that Simon and I have. We met at a hackathon. We literally sat at a same table and we built this really crappy game engine that then we brought on stage and it worked. And it was to play video games on the public TVs at pubs. We, we built it in 24 hours without sleeping. And we had so much fun that we continued to do so and tinker stuff. And uh, you know, Simon's maybe practically part of my family. And it's very lucky if you find someone that you also never argue with. That's usually an indication of a good co-founder when you have this professional relationship, because even if it's a friendship, it turns into a professional one after a while, where you're always able to discuss even the hardest stuff, because you're going to have to discuss some really hard stuff with your co-founder. If we ever had an opportunity to start something again, when the seven IPOs and were older and, and more successful, then I would definitely turn to Simon again for a new adventure. But we'll see if we even have the energy for that in the in the future. Yeah, I, I definitely can see your Simon and your answer. Traveling between both the personal and professional relationships are certainly an easy task. And a lot of people, even who are interested in, in starting companies, can find that comfort in, in the way how, how you found him. So yeah, kind of stepping back into some of the more technical problems that V7 main platform is built to solve. So the core product is called Darwin, which is an image annotation platform. And then within that platform, a central component is the annotation capability, which can label any annotation tie from anywhere securely at an unsupervised speed. Could you mind kind of dissecting some of the most notable features developed within this capability? Yeah, so... As you probably might know, and you, the listener, whoever you might be, annotating data sucks. And it's also an unsexy part of machine learning, but it's also the one that eventually makes your model work well. Even if you're working in an unsupervised problem that is fully unsupervised, data collection in a way, or at least what you're feeding in the model, is kind of your supervision, or even just the unstructured information within it is your, your supervision. So there's always an element of being able to organize that stuff in a way that works well. And we wanted to create an experience that was, first of all, delightful to use rather than a chore. And second of all, that leveraged the state of the art of deep learning, because we thought that the current set of tools were not up to spec. And what V7's uh, Darwin platform does is you can throw any image at it and then defining a few 
in a semi-automated way, you define a, a region of interest, like a very coarse box, and then it will find objects within it that you want to segment, and it will segment it in a class agnostic way. So we have demo examples where we have the X-ray of a hammerhead shark. That's an object that's definitely in no training set in the world. It's not only an X-ray, which is its own weird data type in, in DICOM format, but it's also a strange animal. And it's able to segment its bones or any particular part of the shark in a way that is almost magical. It'll understand things on its own. And that's one of the key features that put us on the map. It, it was the its ability to automate the labeling so quickly. And today you can start labeling a data set and within a few minutes of doing so, you can uh, train a model. And these are state-of-the-art computer vision models that will then start automating your work as you work on the very same data set. So this helps both teams that are labeling data on their own, which is quite a lot of us as we get started, as well as much larger enterprises that have teams of hundreds that now do the work of thousands. Really the, the effect of this tends to be not you know lower training data costs because we all want to win in this race to AI, but rather enormous amounts of training data. And that's really what we wanted to achieve. So yeah, other than that, the annotation experience is delightful. It works like a very high-end graphic designer tool, which I think is influenced from our backgrounds a little bit. And yeah, we wanted it to feel just like a professional tool for any other type of design just for, for labeling machine learning data. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a demo. This feature is called auto annotate, right? And that's a demo of it. And then yeah. I'm sure to put that into the channel as well, just to kind of see oh, how, how it works. In, as Abato just mentioned, as we on kind of continuing on the annotation thread, you wrote this blog post last year, basically discussing the seven things to look for in a video labeling tool. So can you go over a few of the important ones and how did, you know, Darwin's video annotation capability meet some of these criteria? Yeah, so the world of video annotation is rather sad, or at least was rather sad a few months back. And I think uh, people, the, the first problem is people don't quite understand video very well and, and what video codecs do in video formats, what a frame rate actually is and what a frame actually is when you're encoding videos and playing them on a browser. The other side is that Video annotation is not, it's completely different from image annotation. You're drawing an image, but you're actually drawing temporally. And the people that really understand video annotation are motion graphics animators. And that's really where we took inspiration from. I am an amateur motion graphics animator. I, I used to make Micromedia Flash videos when I was 13 or so. So kind of in line with the whole video game things when you had the Newgrounds or its many predecessors and you could make Flash games on it. That was one of my passions. And Macromedia Flash, now Adobe Flash, was pioneering the use of keyframes and tweens, motion tweens, to interpolate something from point A to B. And we took that and basically put it on steroids to a point where it's more advanced than the interpolation that, for example, uh, After Effects does. Uh, we're able to interpolate polygons with hundreds of points to a polygon target with uh, thousands of points. So you have to generate these on the fly in between frames and still keep everything performant and keep it on a browser. So for, for those that don't care about the technical details around it, it's basically a whole lot of, you start with one image, the video plays, and then something moves in the video, like a, a person is jogging and you want that person's mask. You want it to, its contours to be tracked as this person runs. And that's something we spent quite a bit of time on in the combination of interpolating 
frames and then using auto annotation to create these keyframes effectively where you're marking a checkpoint to where the movement happens. And that was one thing. The other thing is video, when you're training models on video, you're actually generally training on image frames and then you're concatenating them. So we made a pipeline to extract full resolution PNGs of every single frame in a long form video and allowing you to use these in training. And this also allows us to have the only frame accurate video notation uh, platform that I know of. And someone can come out and say, we've done something similar. But anyways, the majority of uh, video experiences on the web are not frame accurate, including some of the, the most known video players out there, because that's simply how HTML5 video works. We had to create this whole other video player experience just so that if you're labeling something on frame 500 and you're making the mask of a an object, that when you're actually extracting frames on your own video or, or training on them, it's exactly the same one. Sometimes there's an error that can be between two and, and 10 frames. And I think that just creates bad AI. And, and that's not something we wanted to see. There's a few other considerations, but I think these are the two that were the hardest technical challenges to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing, you know, very, very concrete technical details on the approach that uh, Darwin's tech label is highly complex, you know, video. And, and, you know, I love the point about when you mentioned taking inspiration from motion graphics. So it seems like, you know, there's a lot of things that ML engineers can learn from other industry who work with, you know, complex uh, unstructured data like, like this before. Dataset management is another fundamental value proposition of the Darwin's platform. And based on what I review on the website, Darwin users can load data in diverse formats, track annotation progress, search for the right image, collaborate with college, and uh, even uh, version control annotation. Can you unpack some of the key principles behind this robust dataset management tool? Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the most at face value boring features we have, but it's the one that's the hardest to create and personally my favorite it's the fact that you can see all of your data sets in one place and you can manipulate them and you can view the results of your annotation at any time you can also view the history of every single annotation and stages that it's gone through and the amount of work that has gone there is is enormous and i can't give myself merit for it it's our back-end engineers work. We have a pretty brilliant team that made something that is still robustly handling billions of images and very hardly ever gets a slowdown. So the core feature of it is you have a gigantic data set. It's got hundreds of labels across hundreds of classes. You want to be easily able to filter them, to create these search queries, to assess the data, of the quality of your data, and then to maybe assign a task or to say, hey, let's segregate this little bundle of data and let's see if it uh, contains the wrong bias that we're after, or let's assign it to a person to create a task and then add uh, an extra label to it. And we wanted to create the fluidity because we find a lot of people, if we look at open data sets, for example, they contain a lot of mistakes Primarily because you can't actually visualize the whole data corpus easily. If you look at ImageNet, it contains hundreds of errors, sometimes really embarrassing ones. And it saves itself because it's so hard to visualize. Like the, the uh, go try go imagenet.com. Now, I don't even know if it's up, but it's always down. And you can only see like a, seven images at a time. We wanted something where you could see all the data and just unpack the ugly bits of it and, and weed them out. Yeah. So it seems like visualization and, and curation in general is very important. 
criteria principle here that is being think about in, uh, in the design of this tool, right? Yeah, indeed. Data visualization probably being number one. Yeah, well, curation actually probably even even more important. Being able to actually do something when you visualize it. Yeah, and I'm just curious about that concept of version control annotation. Like, does that actually mean like you see the diff between like previous annotation and, and the updated one? Yeah, we save those and we allow you to trace things back to, for example, if at a certain stage someone made a mistake, you can always trace back the history of those annotations and when they were submitted. Uh, this is really important in medical contexts in which someone might lose their credential or they might not be someone that you want to have as a, as a labeler for a particularly important set of diagnoses. And you can always trace things back. And then also for FDA approval, if you're working in, in a medical company, uh, having that knowledge and that track record and you know that version control of all of your data set versions and within each image, all of the stage versions is a pretty important one. And then we definitely touch on uh, medical imaging application healthcare uh, later on in our conversation. Before that, model automation is another topic that we'd love to discuss. So our job team has developed a state-of-the-art in-house model called V7 Neurons, which enable users to get strong performance on the use case quickly, simply from a web dashboard. So would you mind maybe like sharing a few client use cases where V7 Neurons could get a surprisingly strong performance? Yeah, at this point, it surprises me as well. You can train these instance segmentation models with very little training data. I'm going to make some internal examples before I make some very quick uh, external ones. Every... Three months, we run an internal challenge at V7 to develop uh, something funky with AI. This quarter, we had people training a guitar key recognizer. We had people to, to understand if plants contained blight on them. And they all worked with generally less than 100 training samples. Uh, I trained a, a blood cell counter using the microscope that this webcam is currently prodded on, on eight training images. And so things are getting really good with uh, increasingly less training data as long as the training data is of good quality. In terms of customers, we have companies that are building self-driving car AI that are mostly spending their time applying attributes to objects as opposed to segmenting them out or placing bounding boxes on them. I think this is a pretty darn good achievement because it saves a, a whole lot of time and effort on these people. And you know th this leads to having autonomous cars a lot sooner. One of my favorites though, is from a company here in the UK called Optifarm that assesses the health of poultry so that we can have free range poultry the world can afford and no more caged hens, which suffer all their life. And it's an AI to understand that whether chicken are uh, living healthy, they're eating enough, they're drinking enough, they're stretching. And this was all done using the models uh, built on V7. And uh, they labeled some of the data, I think uh, 60 or so images. And then the resulting model that ingested those images was able to understand all these activities that the chicken took. It's 500 of them at the same time. So 500 polygons being rendered in real time. And uh, yeah, that, that was all done, done on platform. Now, not everyone uses models for automation because some teams are incredible at building their own and that's really what they do. But they are helpful for creating a lot more of your training data. Yeah, I mean, it's... Definitely sounds like, you know, the model is domain agnostic. It seems like well, we limited images from the different domain, which bring a lot of benefit in terms of efficiency and, and, and you know, really times to development, right? Well, thanks a lot for sharing all those technical details on, on the, some of these fundamental capabilities of Darwin. 
And so for the next part of our conversation, I kind of want to learn more about the, the startup journey. Let's think of your AI hat and put on your father hat. So V7 raised an uh, approximate amount of 3 million seed crowd back in December 2020 from uh, Amadeus Capital, Partech, Astrid Capital, and Milk Venture. Uh, what fundraising advice could you give for founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? I think the first one is that you, the founders, are going to be the differentiator and you need the funds to make it happen. So raise early and raise fast. And when seeking investors, I think these, you know, it's it's a lot like dating. Go for the ones where the resistance isn't particularly high in your early days. If you're a starting founder, if you aren't, you already know what to do. And then there's really a lot of people out there and there's a lot of people with money out there that are willing to invest in, in talented people. The one thing you need to do is imbue trust. I know you see a lot of snake oil salesmen like entrepreneurs in the media, but those are talked about because they use their eccentricity as a tool. You know, your number one priority is look for people that think a lot like you, that act a lot like you in some ways, and then uh, and then pitch to those first. And then the, the, the complement of the team will come with time. And uh, if you're in machine learning, uh, you're in luck because uh, it's obviously a, a very hot space for investment. Don't try to branch too far from your geography. It's going to be a lot easier to find people that are in the city or in the country that you're in before you go to Sand Hill Road. And if you are in Sand Hill Road, then uh, uh, then you already know what to do because all your friends are probably talking about fundraising. Yeah, I'm just going to read that part. Like maybe can you give your own perspective on venture capital narrows for us or in the UK first? In the UK, I think a lot of the background of, of VCs is financial, whilst in the US, there's more foreign entrepreneurs. There's definitely a lot more outlandish idea funding. I think it's for the better for the entrepreneur, of course, because it's easier to get something crazy funded. In the UK, I found there were a lot more requests of proof of value in metrics and money, which sometimes is hard to find, especially in ML, where a lot of the grunt work goes in the starting point of your product development. And then it might take months before the thing actually takes off because it needs to learn enough. Definitely a stark difference there. It's still London, so it's still the best place in Europe to be doing this, maybe outside of Tel Aviv when it comes to AI. Yeah, fantastic. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early-stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about V7's mission? Yeah, I think the first important thing is one great team member or one great engineer, especially or data scientist counts as much as 50 average ones. So really go for the smartest people that you know, and be generous. We are pretty generous with the equity that we give with the salaries that we give relative to where we're located in the UK. And also, if you have a goal that's crazy big enough, then people will automatically be attracted to what you're doing in a way if, if you're talking about building or helping to build up these people's careers by pursuing this goal. And I think the number one piece of advice is your idea is not as ambitious as it will be when you get started. When you get started at first, you're trying to find product market fit. And that's really what your number one goal should be finding something that people want and, and want to buy. And then from there, things start to evolve almost magically. And you have this longer term vision of where things will go and then the world that you want to build out of this. And that's the story that you should tell. You should be the, as, as a founder, you should be the one that looks miles and miles ahead 
and tells you the story of that and then tells you that you better start rowing with us because it's a long road, but it will be the most exciting few years of your life. The ones that you'll look back and say, this is when my life started to change in my career. And these are the years that I remember most fondly when it comes to my career, because the work I did at V7 or your startup was really fun and was really something where you felt like change was happening and things were moving fast. Yeah, ability to tell a story about the startup journey and, and the impact that the company can solve. And I'm just curious, like maybe also related to hiring is just like the concept of company culture. Like from your part of view, what do you think about culture? What are some of the things that you do to set a culture that works for V7? We're um, pretty lucky because we get to see AI being applied in use cases all over the world. So it's all the way from plantations of fruit in uh, South America to the extraction of oil and gas in Australia to basically a global view of every industry and every use case. Some of them in places I'm familiar with, some of them in places I'm not familiar with. And so the need is to have a team that is able to relate to people that are global. On the other side, able to relate to people that are nerds, because at the end of the day, our customers are data scientists, and they really like talking to someone who is a bit like them. You should always try to find customers that are a lot like you, because you'll automatically relate to them. Mm -hmm. And so I think these are our two cultural fitness things that we see is, are you able to be beloved by our community? And are you able to be beloved by the varied representation of our community, whatever that might be. For us, it's, it's quite a varied one, but for some, it is less restrictive. And yeah, if culture is the sum of your past experiences and where you're coming from, then we obviously have a lot of things to, to represent over time. It brings challenges, but I don't think the machine learning community is, is as restrictive when it comes to its backgrounds as we like to think. There's talent emerging from everywhere around the world. We're still going to see more and more progress in the field and how many people are going to be able to jump on it. I think open education on the, the field, the fact that you can learn so much of it online by just looking at a MOOC and then applying some, working on some open source stuff, it, it's really going to make a change for the difference, for the better. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with, with that. And, and, you know, thanks for sharing your hiring playbook, people who relate to the global problems application and as well as uh, related to the, the customers, the clients, so we can speak the language. And talking about like customer, right? You know, just like a couple of months ago, March 2021, you get this interview for SIPT where you mentioned that the biggest mistake that you have ever made at V7 is to lose sight of the ideal customer. So can you unpack that statement for young fathers getting started in the AI space? Yeah. So some people start with an idea when they build a company and that's obviously a terrible start. Some people start with a problem and that's an excellent start, but then some people start with a customer. And I think that's also a very valid start. You should have a combination of both. You should have a problem, but then you want to make sure that the person having this problem is someone you really like and someone you really want to talk to every day, even when this person is really annoyed at you because some customers might be, and you still like them. And that's when you know you got a great customer fit. I think we've been pretty lucky, but lucky, but also work towards it. Simon and I spent a lot of time brainstorming and, and taking a day off just to think about who do we want to dedicate the prime years of our life towards? What are these people? And I think the ML community is, is a good one because they were a lot like us. They all have this, this training data problem to solve. 
I think anything that swerves you away from serving that customer and whoever that might be is a mistake. And you should say no to opportunities that uh, sort of uh, take you away from, hey, uh, you know, can you build your tool to efficiently solve this one specific problem that has to do with my industry and they'll give you money for it or I will want to buy your company early or I will want to, these are all things that founders go through at some point in their career. You just got to be straight as an arrow and say no and always think about what your ideal customer is and if they would want whatever you're being proposed to do. If the answer is no, then walk away. It's not worth it. No matter what the upside, no matter how tough the time is now, if you stay true to your one mission and to this very simple playbook, things tend to work out. Absolutely. In that uh, interview, you know, actually at the end, you brought up this metaphor, building a dream dinner party that I really like. Essentially, you think about like a dinner party of your customers. Do we want to stay at that party? It's a good way to think about whether your customer are the right match for the long term in terms of market fit. So yeah, I just want to brought that up because I think that's an interesting metaphor yeah. of like mental models to look at the problem. Indeed, and I still do. And I think it's a great analogy also outside of work. You know, who are the people you'll add a dinner party? All these people that you're going to have to spend a lot of time with are there. Do you actually want to be there? Do you want to stay? And do you want to stay for, you know, even past the cake or whatever at the end of the meal and keep chatting with them? And so V7 have almost 100 or so customers at this point. And they are in very diverse industry, ranging from life sciences, manufacturing, and environmental sciences. So when entering a new industry, what are some of the typical hurdles that you have to overcome in order to find some of the first few partners and get quick wins? Yeah, uh, the first thing is you want to earn their trust because they're going to send you a lot of data or have you read a lot of data for labeling. And... That generally involves you really understanding what the problems of a data scientist within a specific domain is. And as you might know, if you're a machine learning scientist in industry, the problems in industry really tend to have to do with the data more so than with the models. Uh, In academia, you you spend a lot of time working on the model and making the best architecture to solve a data set. But when you go to industry, you're given this pile of garbage data and you're told to shovel it into an elegant model. And that's the person that you want to talk to, the person who has been given a pile of garbage and needs to turn it into a beautifully elegant AI. And uh, this person will tell you tons of problems that they have. And if you, you know, want to look for a startup idea, just talk to someone who's been given a lot of unlabeled data. And uh, yeah, you know, if they're in, for example, digital pathology, they will tell you that the images are several gigabytes in size. They're hundreds of thousands of pixels in length and height and that they need to contain uh, tens of thousands of uh, polygonal labels each, and they need to be vectors, they can't be images. So all of these things are requirements that a platform needs to solve universally. You you don't wanna start version controlling your labeling platform. So that's something we spent a lot of time doing at V7, talking to all these various uh, industry customers that have different problems, putting them all into a gigantic sheet of of issues and, and then, finding a, a single system that could solve it all. Yeah, for sure. Like talking to people who are most unheard of in the company, right? And then collect all those issues and generalize them, as you mentioned. I think based on what I'm seeing from some of the press about V7, the adoption of the product has been growing the fastest within medical imaging, in particular because you know your team can offer support for DCOM annotation and HIPAA compliance, which both of them are like some of the must-haves in healthcare. 
So can you go over some of the specific challenges of using computer vision for uh, medical imaging applications? Yeah, indeed. So DICOM is the format that medical images come in. It's a container format and HIPAA is the legal requirement of you strangely adhering to not allowing anyone else to see the data. And they are a very strict requirements for companies uh, working on medical images and, and V7 uh, checks these both off. And it's a very unique value proposition for it. Uh, but there's more to that. There's more to just, you know, ingesting a file. It's also the way it needs to be seen. So we spent a lot of time with radiologists, for example, to understand how they actually view these images because the way a radiologist will um, very skillfully scroll through the Hounsfield units, which is basically the, the visual intensity in, in a windowing. So it's not just a, like a contrast slider, but it's a two-handle contrast slider where you're increasing its width sometimes, and then you're increasing its uh, x-axis position. All of these user experiences need to be done in a brilliant way. We've kind of had it pay off over time because now we are really beloved by the medical community and... There isn't a demo that we do with a medical company or a medical AI company that doesn't get a, a positive outcome at the end of it. So I think we did a great job on that. There's still a lot yet more to come because obviously healthcare is, is a huge space. We've seen autonomous driving AI really create a whole lot of volume of training data. And you would hear these stories of the millions and millions of images that they have to ingest, but uh, healthcare is an even bigger sector of that. And it has all these very specific needs. So it's also one I'm excited about because it, it really helps people out. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think it's one of those fields where there's obviously need cutting edge technology, but also like the, the real problems for saving lives. So kind of going back to what, you know, your earlier point, you know, when you were at AI Poly and how actually new technologies that do good for society in a meaningful way. So certainly like a bit of vision for healthcare, uh, one of those things that should garner more attention. Uh, in order to actively engage with the broader computer vision and AI community, I saw that there's a landing page called Academy with various tutorials on how to build AI with V7. And furthermore, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, V7 also worked with the UK's National Health Service and Italy's San Matteo Hospital to develop a model that detects the severity of phenomena in a stress X-ray and predicts whether a patient will need to enter an intensive care unit. So, you know, cut overall, how effective have some of these outreach initiatives been to drive customer awareness and adoption of the platform? We have done most of our growth with zero marketing because we just have a very talented person join our marketing team recently. And that's mainly been just raw customer adoption of the product and then a little bit of effort by myself. And I'm very excited to see what we're up to next now that we've built up the team. And some of those outreach efforts were coming through third parties that just worked on our platform and said, hey, we should be labeling all the COVID-19 chest x-rays on this tool because it's uh, much better than, than what else is out there, than traditional DICOM viewers, for example. That's been maybe one of the coolest things is just the customers coming up to you and telling you, hey, we, we want to feature this for you know a public health program. And I have to say, there's still a lot in the ML space that we have planned. So I don't want to share too many details on what's coming up in our outreach plans, but this is only the start. And uh, yeah, I think 
Working with the NHS is pretty cool. Working with anyone that's working on an open data set is also one of my favorite things because that's how all of us get started. We work on an open data set, it, get our first model of it. We're doing something cool with it. It all starts with this kind of something that another team has passed forward in the form of that set. So if anyone's working on an open data set and wants a place to host it and for it to be labeled, you know, drop us a line. Yeah, for sure. And I'm good at that examples of that project with COVID-19. Also a super effective strategy, right? Because, you know, you're doing open source project like this and you drive awareness and people are going to naturally get more engaged and learn about the enterprise layer on top as well. Another interesting perspective that I'd love to hear, your thoughts. We kind of briefly mentioned that during our stream before conversation, but given that the MLOps tooling ecosystem is still nascent, what have been some of the things that you learn regarding how to collaborate and create win-wins with other ML companies? Yeah, the MLOps space, I think it's still, it really is quite nascent. And I really believe in the, the whole win-win stuff. I think the great ML stack is going to come from startups that really focus on their domain and make the best possible XYZ for ML. And we're starting to see a few great startups that are focusing on, you know, how do I prune a model effectively? How do I enable you to, to version stuff? How do I enable you to, some of them are even doing inference, even though it's something that B7 offers out of the box, there will be some tools that are just uh, so focused on something that they do it brilliantly. And it's a bit like how it is in marketing or in other forms of SaaS at the end of the day, and obviously more on the technical side with, with frameworks. I think we're yet to see the evolution of MLOps and we should start collaborating on standards. Otherwise we end up in a standards crisis. Annotation standards, for example, in my field are an absolute mess. And I hope we get together, figure out a JSON standard that works for everybody. And we don't have to start converting one format to another. And then this creates a lot of data set deversioning and, and fragmentation. Yeah, for sure. I think like that's a really awesome you know perspective to have when when you're talking about like how to become a, a good player in the ecosystem, right? But, so I, I do think like part of the MLOps evolution is because you know AI and ML always have a deep root in open source where people contribute to projects and, and share the learning with each other. Given the fact that the industry is still nascent, like you said, there's so many you know learnings to share and things to be done. So it's really about like working together and expanding the pie, expanding the market net, make people more aware of some of the solution that these technologies can provide. And, and so, um, yeah, we can all learn from each other and playing a, a positive sum game when, you know, we try to create more value than, you know, trying to capturing the whole market. So that's definitely something yeah, that I, I personally uh, align with. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Drop in on that. And so V7 is the only EU headquarters image annotation platform for ML and among one of the first systems to research the use of AI to further train AI. Talking about sort of European market. How would you describe the adoption of AI for the enterprise? Well, first of all, in the UK specifically and for Europe broadly? Yeah, I think it's lower than the US, but so is everything in software. But also sometimes it's more ambitious in a way. We have some projects happening in Europe that are sometimes more impressive in scale and in magnitude than what we've seen being done in California. So there's a bit of a trade-off similar to the VCs. Europeans are much more structured. The When the project starts, it starts seriously. There's no R&D or pilot phase. But I have a lot of hope for the European ecosystem. We're 500 million and we are a little more cautious in jumping into a new technology. So you still see people using more traditional ML in production. But when we do jump into the full swing of deep learning, which I think is going to happen, if, if anyone out there is, is still hanging on to their previous approaches, you know, Welcome to debate on this somewhere else. 
that, you know, we're, we're going to see some fantastical stuff. There's also other things related to, to Europe that have to do with our legal requirements or with how to handle data, but I don't like to see that as a differentiator because it's just manipulative. I think there's a scientific hunger in European founders and European AI companies and our tendency to, to work on these somewhat humble because you don't talk about, they're not flashy, but extremely difficult scientific problems that we'd love to, to support as an AI component to them. Yeah, I love the term scientific hunger. That's definitely a novel way to frame it. Finally, kind of you know, circling all back towards the beginning. So you have received multiple entrepreneurship awards from your home country, Italy, from being awarded by the president, Sergio Mattarella, to receiving the National Gentile Award for Science and Innovation. Personally for you, how do this recognition mean in the pursuit of democratizing AI for the world? Yeah, so first of all, meeting the president in if you're from the U.S., meeting your president in a non-U.S. country is a lot closer to meeting just some random dude. It's a little more upscale than that. And obviously, you know, visible is, is, is not quite a random dude, but it's not like meeting Obama. So, so it's a much more down-to-earth recognition. And uh, it was good because it also meant that we personally have leadership that's interested in our space. And it gives you the chance to talk to them even for a short time and tell them why your space is important. Recognitions are a red herring, though. So if you are out there and you're an entrepreneur and you see your friends getting whatever under whatever or, you know, best X of the year, do consider that awards are just as much of a business as yours and they need to be handed over to someone and don't focus too much on them. You know, they'll come when you do something flashy and cool but sometimes you'll be the most successful you've ever been and no one's going to be noticing. And that is fine. I think in general, I like that a lot of the awards that we receive were for positive use of AI. I think that's obviously a sign that the world wants to see this technology go in the right direction. And, you know, take it as a hint if you're working on something and you're questioning the ethics of it, that there's going to be some rejection on that, given people's emotions tend to not lie when it comes to this stuff. And uh, in general, I think the awards that I'm most proud of are probably the ones I haven't won yet and hope to to achieve with the work that we're doing. So I'll try to keep my head down and uh, try to keep our team happy and have us keep marching forward. It's a very, very long road for all of us ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I love that tech and entrepreneurship really about the journey, less so about the outcome, sticking with the journey long enough and you, the outcome, just the byproduct of it. So Alba, to this point of conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and you just give uh, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, yeah. name three people in the computer vision community whose work you admire. Jeff Hinton, because he's humble and because he understands that we'll have to rethink our field fundamentally. Chelsea Finn, because her work in meta learning is really cool. And I think we're only at the beginning of seeing the outcome of that. It's going to change our field. Jeff Kloon, because his work with Poet in basically creating agents that need to create their own curricula for learning stuff and they make their own training data, if you will, is the only way for us to actually make agents that work at scale and in the real world. And I really dig that. Yeah, those are absolutely great recommendation. Number two, what is one book that you recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset? There's a short book that I reread every few years called Start With Why by a folk called Simon Sinek. It's short, 
and it's uh, simple and it tells you exactly, it grounds you. It makes you realize exactly what you should be doing in your entrepreneurial world and get rid of all the other faff that's unnecessary. Uh, give it a read if you haven't. It's quite accessible and you can read it in a day. And then lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage company vision and our AI practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? <laughs> well, this is an easy one. I mean, as founder of V7, I was obviously tell them, come and get some training data with us. Come and uh, change the way you've been doing computer vision. Find out a whole new way of doing it collaboratively and in a much more efficient way. V7labs.com. All you got to see. The only place you got to go. Uh, yeah, that's definitely what I would tweet. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Abato, I really enjoy learning about your journey, your background today from you know growing up in Italy and did your undergrad in the UK to going through the Singularity University program and working on some of the biggest problems which cultivated into the developing AI policy to help solve issues for the blind to your journey with V7 Labs, ranging everything from the technical challenges to entrepreneurial learning, your thought and perspective on the development of the MLS community, European VC and AI ecosystem. You know, I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today uh, into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to kind of take a look at some of your really awesome TED Talk videos and V7 product demo and read some of the blog posts that you've written, be more educated about the training data management problem and, you know, learn about some of the cool things that your team is doing in, in Europe and, you know, for the broader ML and, and AI community in general. I, I really enjoy our conversation and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your evening. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for telling the start of our story and for having me again. Have a good evening on your side too. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.